For residents of Humboldt County, crossing the bar has become a metaphor for breaking barriers, exceeding expectations, confronting the unknown, and for simple courage. Literally, of course, it refers to the challenge mariners have faced over the last 150 years in navigating the treacherous stretch of ocean that leads into Humboldt Bay, a precarious passage that has been the destruction of numerous vessels and taken lives. It even became the topic of a local book of the same name by local author John Humboldt Gates. We've borrowed the term for our very first Keat podcast to exemplify a little bit of that frontier spirit we believe still pervades our community, to honor our guests who we believe exemplify these traits, and to train our focus on how each of these folks are emblematic of our past, but are also this community's future. It's also fitting that as we here at Keat seek to broaden our reach beyond the confines of television and into the universe of ones and zeros, this is our own experiment in tearing down old walls and charting new paths. I'm your host, James Falk. Together with Keat TV and local historian Jerry Rohde, we bring you Crossing the Bar. host James Falk with the Crossing the Bar podcast. Our first guest for the show is Ken Bates, who has been a longtime fisherman in Humboldt County, as well as a fishing industry advocate. Um, He's been associated with the Humboldt Fishermen's Marketing Association for many years, and he's kind of known as a scholar fisherman, um, and I think that that's uh, well-deserved. I met him or heard of him through uh, an old compatriot of mine, John Driscoll, at the Time Standard, and um, John would regale us with stories about how awesome Ken Bates was. So um, when we started this podcast, I wanted to talk with him because I think that he represents a a good, strong voice of advocacy for fishermen and for a heritage industry in Humboldt County. Um, So Ken, um, we are sitting here in Keat Studios today talking as part of the podcast. Can you um, sort of run through for us how you uh, came up to Humboldt County and why you chose to make it your home. Yeah, thanks, James. Well, first I would start with uh, thanking you for inviting me to come and speak. Uh, You know, it's kind of fun thing to get to do. I would caution people, um, take everything that you hear about me with a grain of salt. (laughs) There's good stuff and bad stuff. Of course. But yeah, so just to give you a brief brief history of kind of how I got here. my grandfather and great uncle were uh, offshore tuna fishermen out of San Pedro. Um, I grew up down in San Pedro and then later just a shortly out, a little ways out of town there. My father had a marine electronics business and most of my childhood was spent in the harbor. Um, I got my first job working on a boat, a paid job at 15 and a half. I was the youngest deckhand that this particular company had ever hired. And um, so I was working on boats all through essentially high school and the time that I went to junior college in Southern California. Um, I came up here in 1967, looked around, took, brought my truck up to look around. I looked at all the fishing stuff and was very impressed. Uh, I came back in 1970, um, spent two years at Humboldt and also working in the, you know, in the fishing industry and on the boats and eventually basically just landed here essentially in, by 1974, um, I was crewing on, on some of the Trinidad boats and I was um, 
the, I had just joined Humboldt Fisherman's Marketing Association and that was an interesting thing for me. It was my first sort of, I guess my first experience with, with a Fisherman's Association and it was all old guys, heads full of gray hair. I sat far, far in the back, was terrified most of the time and uh, it was a great place to learn a lot and I kind of got a great shove forward, you know, in being able to take advantage of the opportunity that Humboldt County offered me at that time. Mm -hmm. So what was it, I mean, you mentioned that you came up here on your truck and you looked around. What about the area impressed you, like you said? What was it, was it just the facilities or the culture? What did you like about it? I, I think a couple things. First of all, if you looked at, if you looked at the port of Eureka in 1970, um, Eureka was essentially the largest fishing port on the west coast of continental United States. The San Pedro, LA area had greater landings and that was only because of the offshore tuna fleet. Um, and so there was a lot going on here. At the time when I first moved up here, there was, I think there was five fish processing plants and a total of nine fish buyers. Yeah, Eureka Fisheries was huge back then. Yeah, I mean. Eureka Fisheries, Palladini, Lazio, um, Humboldt Seafoods was just going away. I was just getting started and I think also, um, Halbert Producers Co-op was here. Mm -hmm. They're up in Sitka, Alaska now. So there was a lot going on here. In the spring, there'd be seven or 800 boats in this harbor. Wow. You know, when the salmon season started out on April 15th. And so there was just a lot to do. And then a secondary thing was that um, I had been building skiffs and stuff all through high school, destroying my parents' backyard. <laughs> and. Um, the, a lot of the smaller vessels up here were old style vessels. And in Southern California, um, plywood and glass planing holes were kind of the thing. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, besides fishing up here, I actually started, I started uh, actively building boats during the winter. And I did that until just a lot, well, four years ago was the last boat I built. Wow, would, would you consider yourself a shipwright or is that something that's No, nah, like ships are over 100 feet. Um, so, the, okay. so, so yeah, I was basically a boat builder in the winter. Um, the cool thing about boat building is that I got to do all the design work, draw the plans, figure out how much the, you know, the bid, how much it was going to cost, you know, talk to the customer multiple times. And, um, that's the, that's the part that's exciting. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know, you end up in kind of catching the enthusiasm bug of from course. the customer. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually you get to the point where the customer decides this is what he wants and you settle on all of it and you sign the contract and then it's six months worth of work. <laughs> it's just work. work. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. I was lucky. I had uh, a bunch of other guys that were fishermen that worked with me in the winter. Mm -hmm. I had as many as five employees and three boats going at once for a few years. So wow. that was my winter thing. And then my summer thing was, was fishing too. Yeah. That's one thing that I think this area misses is that it used to be quite the center for boat building, right? I mean, there was the Fairhaven plant and there was a famous boat builder out there. Am I right on that? There was a yeah, I mean, there, this place was, has a long history, you know, of, of boat and shipbuilding, you know, in part because in California history, once white European males showed up, um, and did all the damage to the native populations. The first, the second thing that they started doing was figuring out how to capitalize on timber. And so, in order to do that, they had to way to get it, get a way, of, make a way of getting it out of here. Yeah. Um, and so that was the beginning of the shipbuilding trade in Humboldt County. Mm -hmm. The stuff that I did is is was also restricted to commercial fishing, and it was all small scale. The biggest boat I built was 40 feet. Yeah. 
well, that seems pretty large to yeah. a landlubber like myself. <laughs> but yeah. uh, and that's uh, quite the skill. And it sounds like you're entirely self-taught. Is that right? Or? Um, no, I, 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 I um, this is kind of crazy. So I took a quarter of engineering drawing in in high school. I had tons of shop classes and things like that. I had access to tools, you know, through my father and my father's business all the time I grew up. Um, had spent some time, you know, in other yards and, and had been mentored by Bob Staff at Seaway Boat Company down in LA. But literally the quarter of engineering drawing taught me the basics of how to, I don't know, how to think about and draw, you know, boat plans. And so um, I learned how to do the weight calculations on the boats and, you know, and uh, balance and trim stuff, all those kind of things. So that was, that was kind of a great thing, but that's sort of, while it, it hooks into the fishing, you know, the, the, the boat building for me is something I always wanted to do. The fishing is something that I, I have always done. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of, it's sort of, they go together, but they're somewhat separate too. You know, it strikes me, I'm raising kids. I have uh, a teenager, 17 years old, bright kid. Um, and, you know, there, there seems to be, and maybe it's just because of my generational perspective, I'm older now, and I look back at kids and I'm like, oh, they're not doing the same things I was doing, so maybe they're not as driven or as ambitious. But here you are, I mean, a kid, uh, you take a quarter of, of you know, what, what you just mentioned, and your, your brain immediately takes that and, exp you know, you make it into this, uh, passionate pursuit for yourself. I mean, obviously, you're a bright kid, uh, driven, um, intelligent. I mean, what what do you think gave you that confidence to kind of be so um, ambitious about what you wanted to do? I actually think it was my father. Was I, I struggled. Uh, I I struggled in uh, elementary and junior high school. You know, uh, I was on first name term with the assistant principal in junior high school. Um, <laughs> That's a sign and, of creativity, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Mr. It was Mr. Cyril. He was always nice to me, but I spent some time in his office. And, you know, um, I realized now at the time I was bored out of my mind in school. Yeah. But by the same token, you know, I picked up enough stuff in school to actually to be able to learn how to read and write. You know, that's mm -hmm. a... Well, we, we laugh at those kind of things. Having writing skills and verbal skills are super important. Yeah, that's some yeah. of the most important stuff. And then the other thing was that, um, you know, in this day and age, and, and again, you know, because of my age, I'm not really connected to what goes on in our junior high schools and high schools and things. But, you know, there has been over time kind of an, a de-emphasis of working with your hands. Yeah, absolutely. And being able to work with your hands, being able to think and draw and put something on paper, it challenges you constantly all day long mm -hmm. to think about what you're doing. Not everybody needs to be a mechanic, not everybody needs to go ahead and be a carpenter, but to have some of those skills and understandings, you can apply that in other places. Yeah. So we'll get back to having a broader education, which I've always been an advocate for. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting, and that's part of what the podcast is supposed to be about, is the pioneering spirit of, you know, 50 years ago in Humboldt County, up to 30 years ago, even now, maybe, but I, I'm not yeah. seeing it as much, that there were characters like yourself. I mean, when I started at the time standard, there was Jack McKellar. He was on the city council. Yeah. And he was obviously curmudgeon -y, And, you know, he said some things that were probably not, the, you know, things that, maybe shouldn't have been said, but he was a, a singular character and a singularly self-made man. Mm -hmm. And uh, you strike me as someone sort of in that mold, and that's kind of part of what I'm trying to capture, is this uh, uh, idea of people who've made their own way in the world and figured out a way to 
um, you know, live and succeed on the rugged, you know, shoulder of North America in Humboldt County. Um, so, but that's, you know, sort of an aside. With, with what, you came up here and you uh, decided you liked what you saw. What was it like first trying to come up here and settle? And uh, you mentioned that your dad was uh, a fisherman or owned a... Uh, he owned a marine electronics, a marine electronics, marine electronics business in San, right in the harbor in San Pedro. Was it hard for you to establish yourself, uh, you know, on no, your own up here? No, in, in some respects it wasn't. And in part because... Uh, as a as a kid in the summer, was you know when I was in elementary school, I went to work with my dad all the time, and so I got used to being around um, groups of older males. You know, I learned that you didn't just start talking, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and you put your time in and things like that. And so some of those skills that I learned hanging out with my father before I was working age helped me a lot up here. Yeah, um, but there's a lot to be said for being polite. Absolutely. Um, and so those are those are kind of the things there, you know. And again, like I said, I, I came up. I, I was uh, I was in the process of. I had taken lots of zoology and biology classes, and I was taking um, a couple different ichthyology fish classes at Humboldt and stuff like that. So, so I had that going on the side. Uh, during that time, I had also done a bunch of work for various aquariums, mm -hmm. you know, in in Southern California. So I had a bunch of different things that I could do. I'm going to drop back, and I'm going to just kind of. Burst your bubble for a second, James. Yes, so please. I think I don't think I've ever had an original thought in my life. <laughs> everything, everything around us has been done by somebody else. Sure. And if yeah, we're, yeah. yeah, and so we, all of us, basically are standing on the backs of people that have worked really hard to figure stuff out. Yeah. You know, and so we're still we're still kind of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. I just, you know, it's I admire the practical ability to get things done, and I, that seems to be more and more, and again, maybe it's just a matter of my perspective, a vanishing, you know, capability, and uh, so by focusing on people who've been good at that in their life, maybe we can sort of rekindle a little bit of passion yeah. in that regard, uh, you know. Yeah, so I, w I would make a comment on that, and sure. I don't care if you're, if you have a, a if you have a project, a physical project that you're working on, you know, if you're involved in, you know, community activities or community politics or national politics, um, all of those things have a, they, there's a common thread there. And, and that common thread for me is the ability to just keep grinding away at whatever it is that you think that you need to work on. Yeah. And um, it's, it's difficult to prevail when you are a short-term thinker, yeah. you know you have to be willing to put in the time over time, you know, and and that's something that's that's helped me, um, you know, starting a boat for somebody. While it just sounds totally cool, it's just work. It's grinding. It's glassing. It's crawling around your hands and knees and shoving boards through the saw, you know. And so what you have to think about is 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 that the finished product that you're aiming for and kind of keep chewing through it, yeah. and that's been kind of the same approach that I've taken in representing the fishing fleet here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about that, the fishing fleet and the state of fishing now. You mentioned that uh, when you got here, it was booming. Uh, I mean, am I wrong in thinking it's not booming now? And what are the reasons for that, if that's yeah, true? So, yeah, so when I got here, it was booming. And um, there's this real great thing I've learned from some younger 
um, fish managers and stuff, and from uh, my friend, Dr. Laurie Richmond. When you say fish managers, what does that mean? Yeah, it's fishing game biologists okay. and stuff like yeah. that. You know, and also Laurie Richmond at Humboldt State University, who is still trying to educate me. <laughs> so one of the things is that you'll hear this term, changing baseline, a changing baseline. So when I got here, my baseline was five or six processing companies, nine buyers, hundreds of boats in here, you know, three different places to haul boats out, two marine stores that were completely fitted, and four fuel docks. Mm -hmm. You know, the largest cold storage in Northern California. Yeah. And all of that stuff was, was operating and running. The infrastructure. Yeah, all yeah. the infrastructure and everything it took, you know, and we had a really vibrant waterfront, all kinds of stuff going on, and a lot of history there. Um, and so I have gotten to watch all that change, you know, I mean, radically change. And so a tourist that pulls up now and sees some boats at Woodley Island Marina, oh, look, there's some fishing boats. And I look and go, gosh, there's hardly any boats left. Yeah. So part of the thing, the thing that's difficult for, for all of us here is that we have watched these changes and, and part of it is being able to understand why the changes took place and how we can go ahead and adapt or kind of um, the, way that we, the way that we function in the community, you know, in a way that will be positive. So our industry, the fishing industry, has gone through a huge period of regulation. When I was a young fisherman, you could go and just buy a license and you could go fishing, and that was it. it there was no, no, um, nothing to, to, Im to impede your progress forward. There wasn't a limit to the number of licenses? Like no, yeah, no, those yeah. things. So we've watched all kinds of regulations and stuff that's happened. You know, honestly, um, the regulations that, are, that have been put in place over time, we all do the best we can. You know, and I think that great, great amounts of time and trouble went into, you know, determining how we might, you know, reduce some of the effort and also reduce some of the efficiency mm -hmm. of fishermen in on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Mm -hmm. um, it goes a long ways to keeping fisheries sustainability sustainability going. Um, but with anything, there's always consequences that we didn't really understand. So for myself today. Looking at, looking at how things change. You know, I look at the tremendous financial barriers that we have put in front of young people to become fishermen. So, so one, of the th one of the things that I think is significant is that, is that we have seen lots and lots of changes over time you know, in, in the way we manage commercial fisheries in, on the West Coast and in this country, and, and specifically in California. And everybody goes into management programs, you know, with their best intentions, you know, as we do with pretty much everything else. And there's a lot of things that happen that, you know, that maybe we really didn't contemplate. So getting back to the subject of, of young fishermen, young mm -hmm. entrants into this particular profession, yeah. one of the things that we have inadvertently done is we have put a huge financial barriers for for young guys you know, young men and women to become fishermen sure. and actually be engaged in the industry at a level where they can become boat owners you know and and actually have have this as a career position and that started through uh, California's limited entry program again like I said before earlier when I started fishing you bought a license and you're good to go mm -hmm. and that's all you needed and, um, and so when California determined that the California herring fishery, which took place in San Francisco, Tomales Bay, um, outer Bodega Bay, 
Humboldt Bay and Crescent City, they determined that that fishery was going to be rapidly overcapitalized in the in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. They put in a uh, they put in a fisheries management plan that required that the number of participants be be limited in number, mm -hmm. and so. So the department, Fish and Game Department at the time, now it's Fish and Wildlife, determined how many boats they wanted in these areas and they locked that in. And the, the permit process at the time was set up so that, that you had a permit, you had a herring permit that allowed you to go fishing you know, at a certain time. There was quotas and restrictions and all those kind of things which pretty much were all, a lot of that was pushed by fishermen to begin with. Mm -hmm. but. So that was the deal. And so everybody had their herring permit and they all started going fishing and it was great. And then after some years, you know, because fishermen have, you know, they're a diverse group. They have old people and young people in there. Older fishermen in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, wanted to basically, you know, step away from, from fishing. Mm -hmm. And so somebody went, we don't know who, somebody went to the California Fishing Game Commission and said, mm -hmm. hey, you know, my partner here, Joe Blow, has got, you know, he's been fishing with me and I want to retire and I want him to have my permit and can we transfer this permit from my name to his name? And there was no provision at the time, but the department said, well, this is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. So they put in a provision for, trans for transferring permits between partners. Mm -hmm. Now before that, if a permit became available, the, the, the way that it was set up, you had to have fishing ex documented fishing experience in that fishery. You basically got points per year yeah. for operating, and that puts you in to uh, a position to be in a lottery. So the second that, um, or maybe two seconds after the uh, fishing, Fish and Wildlife put in the provision to make partnership transfers, suddenly everybody had a partner. Yeah. And shortly after that, every partner had a bag of cash. <laughs> and suddenly those permits became saleable. Ah. And that spread to the rest of the fisheries management plans in California to the extent that today, you know, sam a salmon troll permit on, on a vessel, you know, might be worth ten to $15,000. A Persane squid permit is about a million to a million and a half. Wow. Yeah, um, a prawn permit for a trap permit is also, they've gone for almost a million dollars. So is the Department of Fish and Game aware that the you know new entrants are being priced out? Because oh, they're completely aware. And in fact, there's been, um, myself and two other fishermen have been poking at the department and the Fish and Game Commission since 2014, talking about limited entry and, and the fact that we have made it so that these coastal communities you know, can't even afford to keep fishermen, you know, permitted fishermen in these areas. Yeah. You know, and these things get sold out of state and all kinds of stuff. So there's been a series of meetings. The, the Fish and Game Commission is still continuing on that. They're writing a report, you know, about the impacts to coastal fishing communities as far as um, limited entry programs and access to fishing. Yeah. And so those things are going on right now. And those are all really positive things that have happened. Um, for myself, um, because I did, did somehow, I don't know how, but I did learn how to kind of read and write and spell and stuff. <laughs> I've written two or three different pieces uh, that have been published in fishing magazines, and yeah. one of them was written on limited entry, you know, and um, the response that I got from, from one of the limited entry articles was interesting. Um, fishermen that are my age, you know, yeah. o over 60, 
um, they think I'm the devil because because that's the value that they have. Yeah, because every, because all of this, a lot of these older fishermen had you know, and you can put me in this category somewhat. You know, they all everybody had the idea that their boat and their permits, the value in those would be their retirement. Yeah, and so. So suddenly these guys are saying, well, gosh, Ken's just written this thing and he thinks that these permits should be state-owned and they shouldn't have a monetary value, you know. And the young guys that I run across, you know, on the docks and stuff think I'm a hero yeah. because, the, the, you know, they see somebody that's essentially advocating for their entry into these fisheries. Yeah. So, you know, that's an ongoing deal. There's a lot of other challenges um, to, to fishing and Humboldt County is going to be on the leading edge of a couple of these. And the biggest challenge that we see right now is um, is the wind power, the offshore wind power projects. Yeah, now that's something that we wanted to talk about. The, uh, the idea is that wind power is the answer to our, some of our energy issues. I mean, it's obviously, uh, if you discount some of the theories about bird cancer and that sort of thing, I mean, it seems like it's a... Uh, uh, a non-polluting way to generate easy electricity, but it's more complicated than that. It is more complicated. And so, first of all, I need to make sure that everybody's very clear. I have not heard, at least in our association, at Humboldt Fishermen's Marketing Association, I have not heard any fishermen say that they're opposed to renewable energy, clean energy. Um, fishermen are, right now, are receiving they're on the receiving end of the changes that we're making in, in the oceans. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, ocean acidification, the fact that we've had these various warm areas out in the ocean. Dead areas. Right? Dead areas, yeah, yeah, and also dead areas. You know, um, you know, the dead areas off of central Oregon and stuff where the oxygen level's very, very low. Um, we are seeing species shift, we you know, rain shift to the north, to the north, to the north on some of these exceedingly warm water years. So all of those things are going on. Um, and the way that, you know, it, it's going to take, I mean, it's going to have to be a worldwide effort to, to cure this, to, to cure this problem. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some really brilliant stuff that's been, have just, you know, been written about climate change and different approaches and things like that. For fishermen looking at the wind power projects, the wind power projects are highly, highly problematic. And, and because, first of all, um, it's experimental technology here. Mm -hmm. There are three large turbines somewhere in Europe, but nobody has tried to take one of these big floaters and bring it out here and anchor it in 400 fathoms or 300 fathoms of water. Nobody's tried to do this. Yeah. Um, the areas that in the ocean that, that are the most productive for fishing are also the areas that are the roughest and they have the most wind. Okay. And Humboldt County is right at the top of that list. Yeah. From Cape Mendocino north, this place is basically a lot of times it's brutal. Yeah. Well, so, they just had, I mean, no, didn't yeah. interrupt you, but they just yeah. had the Secretary of Interior up here talking about how much potential there is for wind power yeah. here because of, I assume, those, the, those aspects. Yeah, and that's absolutely correct. I mean, this is a windy place. So fishermen look at this, these projects as that it's untested technology. Um, I have made the joke with my wife is that, you know, we bought two aluminum lawn chairs and I'm thinking about putting rockets on mine and making a rocket lawn chair. Should I build a hundred before I try it? And you know, <laughs> fishermen are advocating, you know, a lot of these guys are advocating to just slow down, slow down, before we decide we're gonna completely cover California's coastal ocean mm -hmm. with these various projects. Um, 
their concerns are that this stuff is going to get loose. It's going to, we're going to have, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the tr proper term for this, explosive deconstruction on these things. You know, when they overspeed or when they catch on fire, mm -hmm. um, there, you know, there's going to be a significant carbon footprint to make them. They're made out of steel and they're made out of, out of petrochemicals. Um, there's problems on the East Coast with trying to keep electrician, electro, electrical transmission cables, you know, from the Block Island wind farm, even buried in the ocean, in the ocean floor. They, they keep getting scoured out. Yeah, um, and if that happens, then they have to come back out and do maintenance, yeah. which would cause more yeah. disruption. So there's, a, there's lots and lots of things we could, you know, we have about a six-page list of potential impacts that, that our association has worked on, and that's been a public comment that we've sent out. So one of the things with the wind power projects is that people don't realize, but the ocean, you know, you know the West Coast Ocean for... You know where fishermen work is 100% utilized. You know you might go out there and not see a boat there on a, on a particular day, but somebody fishes in that particular area. So Humboldt County is going to lose you know roughly 150 square miles right out in front to be to begin with. So um, that's just lopped off. It's yeah that'll be out of the wind power areas will not be nobody will fish in those. Okay. And there's lots and lots of reasons for that. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be the we're gonna lose that that footprint there. The Morro Bay. Uh, Central Coast area um, is is more so the total for both of those two call areas is about 600 square miles. There's also an, a, a tentative area just below Crescent City and one below Shelter Cove. So there's going to be a lot of fishing grounds lost. So our job as fishermen is to figure out how on earth we are going to be able to continue to harvest the sustainable food resource that we're basically super lucky to have mm -hmm. and manage to live around these big ocean industrial projects. Mm -hmm. Those projects are gonna follow us right into the harbor here. Yeah. So our goal, you know, and our job has been for the last three years, we've been working with Matthew Marshall at Redwood Coast Energy Authority and, um, you know, hours and hours and hours worth of discussions and with some of the wind power um, corporations that they're talking to and and then we've also been thoroughly engaged with the Coastal Commission and the Energy California Energy Commission uh, US you know California Fish and Wildlife and Bureau of Ocean Energy Management so all of those things you pile all that stuff up and if you're a young person coming back here to go fishing and you go oh my god look at this they're gonna lose all this territory everybody that was fishing in that area has got to move to somewhere else there's gonna be all this vessel traffic and again you know for getting rid of the guys like myself that have head full of gray hair mm -hmm. you know it's gonna be difficult to find people to replace us yeah you know it's another challenge to young people yeah I, uh, I appreciate what you're saying I've also you know having done some research over the years on the internet you know it's about fishing in general i mean um talk about the environmental impact of overfishing or what people consider could be you know depleting the the biomass of the oceans and people point to like the japanese fleets and mm -hmm. other damage that gets done uh and you, and you mentioned that the uh you know it's a sustainable um you know local food production um you know endeavor is that really true i mean can we really say that fishing um even, I guess, fishing writ large um, and fishing here, is that something that we can continue to do with this? I mean, if I understand the approach that we have now, it's like 
and I could be wrong, so correct me, but it's like a, you have a marine protected area that's off limits for a while, and then they'll move that marine protected area to another place eventually so that the, the, the one place that you were fishing can kind of freshen up, and then they rotate that. Is that what goes on? So California has no plans for moving marine protected areas around within the state waters. Okay. You know, uh, and so that's, that's not something that's on the table. Okay. Um, if you're interested in marine protected areas, if you Google, um, oh my gosh, am I gonna fit this, forget this guy's name? I am. If it comes back to me, he's a, a fisheries professor at this, in the state of Washington and uh, if you get that to me later, I'll mention it at the end. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, so there's there's some great there's some great reading that you can do about marine protected areas and also about overfishing. You know, and written from a perspective of somebody that's made their living studying these things. Yeah, um, we're lucky in California. California of anywhere in the continental United States has the most highly regu regulated fishing. In anywhere in, in the U.S. And maybe but you say we're lucky. Is that lucky? Yeah, no, it is lucky because okay. if it isn't, then you have something like where you get someplace like a third world country where, you know, people use whatever they, they means they can and catch and just yeah. catch, yeah. You know, so, 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 yeah, I think that if you look at the general population in California, you know, I think everybody would is pretty in agreement that, that we want to be able to have this resource to harvest at some level, you know, mm -hmm. at a sustainable level, not one that's going to over-harvest it, you know, for generations and generations to come. Absolutely. And so, so the problems that I see in fishing aren't necessarily, you know, with the exception of salmon, they are not necessarily environmental problems. Got you. It's you know, some of it's management problems. Like I said, some of it is if if you're a young person, some of it is the is the problems that have come up you know, with barriers to entry, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, the salmon thing is different. And salmon, because they're anadromous, they travel from fresh water out into the ocean, they grow up and they come back in to spawn in the same areas of fresh water. And those rivers are yeah, really yeah. sensitive. And so, you know, humans evolved on this planet with, a nat with these natural systems around us. And it's just been in the last hundred years that the human population has hammered these natural systems. Yeah. And so, um, so with the salmon thing, you know, because there's the issue of supplying water to everybody in the state, you know, and, and we have to figure out how to prioritize those, you know, we have some really difficult management jobs, you know, as, as citizens here to figure out how to make this work. Yeah. I don't know the answers. Yeah. But I will say something that I think is really interesting because if you can manage to give, for instance, if you can give salmon an area to come back and spawn in the right temperature of water, you know, they're tremendously resilient. The big rain event that we had in December, you know, down in southern, in central California, San Francisco and in the Central Valley and stuff, I just got a report that 20,000 king salmon showed up trying to get into San Lorenzo Creek in East Bay, in the East Bay area, which wow. is nuts. And there was king salmon in these little streams and stuff in Marin. So, again, this gets back to fishing again. So, part of it is that we, as a society, we have to decide to prioritize taking care of the natural systems. I mean, we just have to do that. Yeah. You know, and that gets back to the climate change thing. They're all related. None of this, it's, no. it's all related. So, I mean, there's an interesting uh, question I'd like to ask. I mean, as someone who is basically on the 
interface between humanity and wilderness, I mean, on a regular basis, what kind of impacts have you seen with cl uh, climate change? And is it something that's, uh, you know, uh, growing exponentially or has it been kind of this way for a while? Well, it's certainly been changing over time. And um, in 19, let me think of the date here. In 1969, I was on an albacore, an albacore boat, an albacore bait boat. And the albacore fishing at the time, in the fall fishing, was centered off of Central California. You know, we were fishing off of Morro Bay, Point Sur, you know, Monterey Bay, and that was like the place to be for that fish. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now where are we now? It's, you know, it's the year 2022. You know, albacore fishing is centered off of Central and Northern Oregon. Wow. Yeah, so that fish has moved that far north in my lifetime. You know, it's rare now to catch an albacore in those southern areas. But what guys are seeing now in those areas, they're seeing um, bluefin tuna. Mm -hmm. They're seeing yellowfin and skipjack tuna on the outside when the water's the right temperature. Everything's shifted it's, north. Yeah, it's shifting. So, yeah, so it's, it, it's changing, you know. I mean, yeah. there, there's, there's times when, when albacore fishing, you know, gets as far north as Queen Charlotte Islands, Haida Gwaii, which is northern British Columbia, you wow. know, now. So, yeah, so things have changed. Yeah. Um, do you think that there's a whole lot that we can do, uh, you know, on a piecemeal basis or in a, what do we need to do, I guess, is a better question to begin to address. And, you know, everyone's going to turn to you for answers. So you better have the right answer right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank you, James. I, I appreciate that. No pressure. No pressure. So, you know, I mean, I, again, I'm speaking just just as, as a person. I am not well educated in the ins and outs of, of you know, the, the problems involved with climate change or, or some of these other issues. But you do have practical experience with it. With yeah, I do have something. some. So yeah. one of the things that, that I'm puzzled by, and it's probably politically really unpopular, I have yet to hear anybody say, use less. Yeah. Use less, just that. You know, don't waste a bunch of stuff, slow down a little bit and use less. And, you know, there's some... There's some benefit to those kind of things. Absolutely, you know, there is. And I guess the other thing, too, is that when I joined Humboldt Fishermen's Marketing Association and hid in the back of the room, the guys that were in there that were running that association, it had been formed in 1955. Mm -hmm. And those guys had been through the Depression and they had been through World War II. And they all knew that everybody in the room needed to make a living. Yeah. And so what we see now in a lot of different ways in our society is kind of sometimes a prevalence of it's me first kind of a thing. And, yeah. and I think that's very unfortunate. Yeah. You know, it's not what I grew up with, but it's what we have now. Yeah. I think that those are two very important points. Uh, yeah. I took a, you know, my experience comes from college classrooms, so, but I took an environmental ethics class and um, he was, the professor was very, adamant that, uh, you know, we have this growth mentality in terms of our economic model where um, it's never enough. We've got to grow that 4 to 10% in order to make our society thrive. And there's never a, a, a moment where we're like, we have enough, let's just make it last and sustain it. You know, yeah. it's about growth and not sustaining. Yeah. And I think that that is a, uh, obviously a huge part of, you know, all of humanity's um, you know, ongoing issues, and I would say that selfishness, rampant selfishness, is also yeah. <laughs> probably way up there. Um, 
I want to get a little bit about, uh, you know, what is it about fishing and being on a boat that you, that you love? I mean, what is, like, what are your rapturous moments that make you continue to fish after all these years? Or, or what charmed you in the beginning? I mean, is it? Well, yeah. Well, oh, that's a terrible question. <laughs> I, uh, so, I, you know, I guess first I have to say I was indoctrinated at a very early age. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, was, I have been accused by my late mother of fishing off the couch when I was five. <laughs> you know, and that was from hanging out with my grandfather and my great uncle. They also fished? Yeah, okay. they were both on offshore tuna boats. They were gone months and months and months at a time. Um, gosh. Well, I mean, your operation yeah. now is it's you and your wife? Is that yeah, right? It's, yeah, it's the most fun thing on the planet. It is. Um, yeah, we have, it's, we have stupid fun on the boat, and it's just work. It's <laughs> work. You know, we get up early. It's dark. Um, the ocean's never very particularly nice. It's rough. It's windy. It's cold. She's bundled up to beat hell. You know, um, we fish until the wind gets us or we get tired. You know, and we usually make three or four day trips and most of our fishing for salmon has been down, you know, uh, has been from Fort Bragg down to just below Monterey. You know, we never know at the beginning of a trip where we're gonna go back in, those kind of things. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate to have, to have somebody that I thoroughly enjoy my time with and she likes what we're doing. We're on the boat 24 hours a day together every day for three or four months. Wow. Yeah, and then, you know, when we're working at, at, at you know, in the shop, I, you know, have the skills I've designed and built lots of nets and equipment, mm -hmm. you know, and we work together in the winter, those kind of things. So, you know, I'm lucky I don't, you know, I don't have hired crew, I have my best pal with me. Um, but the fishing stuff, I mean, I don't know, it's really hard to explain. There was, there's a woman down in, in, in the Bay Area, a woman just happens to be, her name is Sarah Bates, no relation. And, <laughs> and Sarah is, I think she's in her 40s, and Sarah was on, on a Zoom call recently, and she, you know, she talked about the fact that we're, learn, we're losing our fishing culture. And that was culture I grew up in, mm -hmm. you know. And um, all of those things, I think, are, are some of the stuff that's that's really neat. I mean, we get to see lots and lots of animals out in the ocean. You know, I'm the kind of guy that'll turn the boat to go look at something instead of just bombing along. Yeah. You know, um, again, you know, I have been asked multiple times throughout my fishing career, why I don't have a big boat? I have a 32-foot boat, you know. It's been clear up to southeast Alaska and down to Santa Barbara and stuff. We've taken it all over. It's the but same boat, huh? Same boat, yeah. What's the name of it? Ironic. <laughs> we laugh, we say moronic sometimes. <laughs> but, um, but again, it's how big do you need it to make a living? That's sure. the kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And the other thing is that the bigger and bigger boat you get, pretty soon it's like having a large business. It's like owning a giant restaurant. It's it more complicated. You can't take a day off. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got a tiger by the tail. Yeah. You know, so I guess partly I'm spoiled because I have had the opportunity, you know, to, to profit at various times. You know, fishing is a, is a, is a roller coaster. Sure. Um, but um, it's allowed me to do what I've wanted to do, and, and I appreciate, you know, continuing to be able to do it. And the stupid thing is, is I'm enthusiastic as, about fishing today as I was when I was in, as a teenager, wow. which is probably brain dead. But, <laughs> but, I mean, that's how I feel about it, yeah. Well, that's uh, sort of the, the state of enlightenment, right? When you can, when it, your work doesn't exhaust you and you can just be so mindful within it that it's, yeah. it doesn't tire you. I yeah, mean. and you know, it's, I've run into other guys, you know. I've got a friend, Neil Guglielmo. 
He's, a, um, he's an Italian, second generation Italian fisherman in San Pedro, and he's got a 70-foot purseiner, and uh, I'm 72, I think Neil's 76. Neil has no interest in, his, his kids want him to quit. He says, why would I want to quit? This is what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, I mean, I think that's very cool when you can pull that off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Now, you mentioned also your relationship with, uh, and this is how I think I first heard about you, was your relationship with the various um, aquariums, and that you were the guy that they would contact sometimes to go get a particular um, critter. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that and why, what kind of special skill does it require to be able to go out and find, you know, the, the spotted nickelback, you know, <laughs> humpy dump when um, it's yeah. a hard, hard thing to find? Okay, so, f so first of all, where I grew up in, in San Pedro, there were three elderly, at the time they seemed ancient to me, fishermen, Italian guys, um, um, that ran the collecting boat from Rainland, California, mm -hmm. you know, and they were at the end of their fishing careers and they were hired as Marineland employees and they ran the boat to go out and catch, you know, rockfish or yellowtail, whatever it was they need that Marineland wanted to put in their tanks at the time. Mm -hmm. I spent tons of time in junior high school and high school hanging out over there and hanging out with those guys, mm -hmm. you know, and got to go on collecting trips and all kinds of stuff with them. And at the same time, I got fed a steady stream of zoology and biology books from the guys in the lab. Yeah. So I kind of both ends of the both conduit, ends. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm still using I'm still using a scoop net pattern that Frank Bricado gave me in 1966. You know, so um, so that got me started. And then uh, I used to go and do uh, I did some contract work for Southern California Edison when they were designing intake flumes to try to bring in cooling water at the King uh, Redondo Harbor, King Harbor uh, generation plant. And they needed, they needed a constant supply of uh, various local fishes there to try to figure out how to build a flume that wouldn't take fish up. Okay. You know, so I, start, I did that. Um, I was on tagging trips and things like that on a couple different boats. And then eventually, you know, when I moved up here, um, there was species up here that some of the other aquariums, Steinhardt and some other places that were interested in. I started working for Monterey Bay Aquarium before the aquarium was opened. Okay. I worked with Dave Powell and Bob Koala down there collecting um, seven gill sharks and bat rays and things like that. And, and it's more than just actually catching the animal. You have to remember that these are animals. I mean, they're like us. And, and so it takes a lot of care you know, um, you have yeah. to be set up so you don't damage these things. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just the same deal. So having had that background down south, I was able to apply it up here. And um, the aquarium stuff is the work for, that I've done for the aquariums, you know, including like Steinhardt and uh, what was I going to say? Point Defiant Zoo up in Tacoma. Um, there's one in the Newport Aquarium. I've worked for all those guys. It's enjoyable work because it exposes you to aquarists and biologists that are essentially in, they're coming from the science and the things. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you get, you get, you, you will learn something every time you have those guys on the boat. None of them are fishermen. Yeah, yeah. You absolutely. know, and so we always find some sort of happy medium. Um, and so that's a positive thing. It's as far as getting rich, you'll never get rich doing that. <laughs> you have to do it because you enjoy it, yeah, you yeah. know, and because you have a relationship with these various folks. I did build, um, design and built a collecting vessel for Monterey Bay Aquarium, which they're still using. 
So my work for them collecting fish ended up sliding into the boat building part of it. Yeah. And then they've hired me a couple different years when we were tagging white sharks in Southern California. So yeah, different kinds of things. Basically, my income has been a hodgepodge of piecemeal projects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that you, things that you love to do, too, though. Yeah, and some of them you find out, well, that, I did that. I don't need to do that again. But most <laughs> of them are, you know, most are okay. Yeah. Not all of them pan out. Uh, you know, there was a, for a while, and I think rightfully so, the whole blackfish phenomenon came out with the killer whale stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, with the marine world, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, were, the, were the things that you were dealing with ever in that kind of situation? I never dealt with, I, I never had any uh, involvement in collecting marine mammals of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's one thing to put some fish in an aquarium, you know, and have, you know, please people, people be able to come in and see that stuff. I, I, uh, I have a different opinion of the marine mammal stuff in, in, in as this display and for, yeah. um, for, you know, for a circus. Well, and like I say, I mean, you know, that documentary Blackfish, I mean, granted it was making a, an argument. It was yeah. an effective argument. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. very impactful. Yeah. Um, so now I'm going to take the conversation a little bit in a weird zone. All right, I'm ready. Um, so uh, back in 2004, off the coast of Catalina Island, there was spotted um, by uh, Navy pilots uh, Tic Tacs in the sky. Um, basically, and they, um, the U.S. government recently admitted that it was real, that there were these things that they can't identify. I'm wondering if you've ever seen any kind of strange phenomenon out on the water. Whether I, it's yeah, so I, I don't know what you're referring to. Basically, it's unidentified aerial phenomenon, like okay. what commonly uh, yeah. called UFOs, but uh, I'm just yeah. asking because yeah. uh, it's and a subject that I am interested in. Yeah, and, and I have not seen anything like that most of the time. Most of my life on the ocean has been under a cold gray sky. I bet that's yeah, yeah. mostly the way what the ocean looks like in most places. So <laughs> <laughs> I've I've missed out on any of that. Have you seen any sort of natural phenomenon that you that you has been sort of a, like a treat that maybe uh, a rarity, whether it's a you know a, what do they call those a water water um, spout water spouts. I've seen a half a water spout. It it uh, I I saw the funnel start and come down within about. Halfway of the, halfway of hitting the water, um, that was in that was down in Santa Monica Bay, kind of a piece of a chabasco that came up from Mexico. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. Um, otherwise, you know, I mean, pretty much, except for lots and lots of wind, you know, and pretty nasty weather on the ocean, which we t go to great lengths to avoid. Yeah. Um, you know, I've probably seen more interesting and violent weather on the beach than I've, than I've seen in the ocean. Because you're trying to avoid it. Yeah, we're, yeah we, try, we just stay out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the nice thing of having a small boat. The time I've spent on the offshore tuna boats has been completely different because you're 100 to 200 miles offshore. And you're there. And you're there. And so when the yeah. weather gets bad, basically you, you, they, you have this thing, it looks like a big parachute, it's a sea anchor. Yeah. You, you know, and there's been times where we're on the boats that I've worked on, we've hung on the sea anchor for two or three days watching wow. the wind blow. <laughs> but you know that's that's just that's a that's kind of a different thing, and that's a great thing for you know a younger person. But yeah, yeah. Have you ever had a moment where you feared for your life? No. That's that's lucky, I think. Yeah, I mean. it's and in part, you know, I grew up. I still surf. I grew up surfing. You know, I have kept my boat off the beach. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no place for a boat in close you know, in any kind of surf. So I've avoided all those kind of things. And um, 
you know, when even when my wife and I are fishing together, you know, when the weather comes up and it's going to get to the point where we can't fish, we go someplace, we'll run downwind wherever we've got to go. It may not be where we want to go, but we'll go someplace where we can anchor up, get out of it and stuff. So part of it is just trying to make good decisions. Everybody will make bad decisions at times. I've yeah. made a few of those where I thought, God, I should never have gone ahead and plowed through all this weather. Sure. You know, but part of that comes with experience. Yeah. Um, one of the things that it seems from the uh, out outside perspective, you know, looking at your life and your story that you just shared with us, um, it seems like curiosity is a kind of a big part of it. Like you have things that drive you to learn. Would you say that's the case? Oh, absolutely. There's a ton of everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing. There's a ton of cool stuff to see. Yeah. You know, um, you know, like I said, I made a, a comment about turning the boat. You know, we'll be going from point A to point B and maybe we've got a 10 or 15 hour run but I see something on the horizon that pokes its head up, you know, and we'll go out and we'll go look at an elephant seal for a minute or two, or, yeah. you know, we, one, one time we, we came within about 200 yards watching it just sitting as a sperm whale sitting there sleeping on the surface. Yeah. You know, we slowed the boat, went down and just, you know, watched this guy for a little while and finally went on his way. So there's lots of stuff. The things that I see, I write down in my log books all the time, and I've got uh, a log for every day I've fished since I started fishing. Wow. Yeah, and that's cool. And, and you should publish those. Well, partly cool. it's because I can't remember anything. <laughs> you know, that's why I write stuff down. But the other thing is, is that getting to see all that stuff, um, and fishermen are really great observers. Fishermen that aren't great observers don't prevail. Yeah. You have to be yeah. able to look at what's going on around you, even when, you, you know, when you're operating fishing gear. You know, most fishermen, nobody really knows what fishing, some fishing gear looks like underwater. We don't know, Yeah. you know, but we know what the results are when we're doing this or we're doing that or we're doing something else. Yeah. And so having, having good observational skills, you know, are, are one of the things that makes fishermen successful. Yeah. I mean, that's basically all I had for you. One last question, I guess, would be if there was something that, um, you know, the community could do or that, uh, you know, local governments could do to help ensure the um, longevity of the industry or to help preserve, you know, the, the careers of, of our fisher people, our angling um, mm -hmm. class, what, what would that be? And what would you like to see, you know, change in order to make it easier for pe people like yourself to succeed? So what I would like to see to make it easier for young people to succeed in our community is, is twofold. On the governmental level, like the city of Eureka, the city of Arcata, you know, the county of Humboldt, you know, our association has made a couple different efforts to try to have a cooperative agreement with these different entities that we would all sit down and talk before permits get issued for developments. Not to stop projects, yeah. but to sit down beforehand and try to find a common, sort of a common thread and a way forward for various projects. Um, and I'm going to, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we got to, as a community, got to witness was the, the, um, the great difficulty in this community trying to decide whether they wanted to have a wind power project, you know, up on the ridge behind Ferndale. Yeah, yeah. And fishermen, you know, being asked to get to stand in a meeting, you know, and try to make their point in two minutes, you know, where there's hundreds of people, we, we never prevail. Yeah. 
Yeah. We're not asking for special treatment, but certainly having the opportunity to be able to have a greater interaction, you know, and an agreement with with the county and with the city and stuff, to, you know, to have these discussions mm -hmm. saves the community time and money. Sure. You know, if you know beforehand that, you know, your neighbor's gonna put up a fence and paint it pink and you don't like pink, and you can sit down with your neighbor before he buys the materials and figure it out, mm -hmm. you know, and make some sort of compromise, yeah. that, that's, that's good for everybody, you know, and having, having those discussions. As far as the regular folks that, you know, that fishermen that rely on, fishermen don't exist for most people because <laughs> when you come down to the dock, to see a fisherman, if it's during the fishing season, there's no boats there. Yeah, yeah. Because these guys are working offshore, nobody sees them. They leave, you know, at two or three or four in the morning and they come back in the dark, mm -hmm. you know, after a couple of days, kick the fish off, you know, run home, do something with the kids and the family and then turn around and leave again. And so one way that, that local people have been able to interact with fishermen f here in Humboldt County is that uh, certain guys have been, um, certain fishermen have been tough enough to jump through an extra set of hoops, mm -hmm. and that is off the boat sales to the public. Sure, yeah. And that has turned out to be a really cool thing because, for a couple reasons, um, it allow it allows direct contact with one of your neighbors. Mm -hmm. You will get to meet people that you didn't know lived in your neighborhood. You know, people will come down to get fresh fish. Um, they get, it gets them out of the house. Even during the COVID pandemic, we had a couple of fishermen in our association that have been really, really on the cutting edge of engaging with the community and selling off the boats, yeah. you know. And years ago, we had a particular thing, I think it was 1982, 83, during that particular El Nino, where there was, that particular year, there was albacore and it was, the fish were really close. And I think about at that time, about 52 tons of albacore got sold directly to the public in Eureka over the summer. Wow. And that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interactions between fishermen and their neighbors. Sure. And that's a great thing. That's like the coolest thing. Yeah. You know, so those are, th I, those are the two things, I think, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. I think that uh, people being grounded and, you know, the people that they're around who are doing the yeah. work that shows up in the supermarkets that yeah. often now is just so anonymous and plastic, yeah. you know? I yeah. think that that's... Yeah. Uh, you know, and I guess I throw one more thing in is that, and this has been my pet peeve, I have represented uh, Humboldt Fishermen's Marketing Association since 1982 um, concerning land use, zoning, and planning. Mm -hmm. And fishermen, because they're gone so much, you know, it doesn't look like there's anybody there, and suddenly you come back and there's been something changed and you've lost... Uh, access to a dock or they've changed the policy at a marina and now uh, there's no there's no more slips and that's happening not just in California that's happening everywhere in the world because of the nature of their work they're not there for the process yeah they, and that's that's worldwide it's not just here it's anywhere you want to go yeah yeah which I th might be alleviated by the part we mentioned at first where yeah. maybe the interconnected with yeah. the government yeah if it's and a stakeholder it, yeah if they should yeah. group you know yep. yeah yeah so part of it's being part of the community got you have to be engaged yeah Jerry Rohde is a local author and historian who has made a living from studying the past and making it relevant for Humboldt County residents today. As he will with every episode of Crossing the Bar, he's listened to our interview and returns now with insights and information to give us a better sense of the history involved. Given your expertise, was there anything that struck you in particular about what you heard 
um, about his life or you know the area and the yeah. time that he's been around? Well, you know, Ken just seems like a really down-to-earth guy that uh, not only has done something that's intensely physical and very dangerous and for a long time and where you have to develop certain skills, but he's also able to really talk well about it. He can, yeah. he can articulate things that uh, uh, need to be said, but sometimes don't get said you know, correctly. And uh, you know, one of the things that struck me is that you know, he's not only going out on boats and fishing, but he's building boats yeah, yeah. also. Absolutely. And you know, that's kind of becoming a lost art, I think. And uh, after I uh, you know, heard what he had to say, I went back. And so I was checking a little about shipbuilding up here uh, on the north coast and um, you know it turns out that uh, back in the early days you had to do stuff locally mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't just uh, you know go on the internet and order up a new fishing boat or something yeah and yeah have it delivered to you yeah uh, you had to build these things for yourself and especially at a place like uh, Humboldt County that was far removed from any other resource uh, location where you could you know, easily have a boat built or done for you. you know, if you needed uh, something like a, a ship or if you needed to build something uh, of any type, you had to have the materials on hand. If not, it was going to be prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Uh, that's one reason why we had, oh, five or six or seven brickyards up here in the early days where they made their own bricks. Wow. And uh, think about it, bricks are heavy, right? So yeah. if you had them made in San Francisco and had them ship up here, it would have been uh, tremendously expensive. So uh, there were clay deposits, and they could do that kind of thing. Of course, for uh, shipbuilding, there was a great wood supply available here. And as it turned out, you started getting a group of people who uh, had knowledge about ship and shipping. And uh, a lot of them were Scandinavian people who had done fishing in other places. And they relocated here. Yeah, relocated wow. here. In fact, uh, for uh, quite a time period, they had what they called the Scandinavian Navy. And it was uh, called that because the ship's captains for so many of these uh, ships that sailed out of... Uh, Humboldt Bay were from uh, Norway or Denmark or you know, one of the Scandinavian countries and uh, they had a tradition there of fishing and of seamanship that carried over here. Yeah, yeah. And then for the shipbuilding, uh, probably the, the most famous shipbuilder we ever had here was a Dane by the name of uh, Hans Ben Dixon. Okay. And uh, he started out, uh, you know, just uh, had a, as a young person coming here and kind of learning the ropes and gradually got to the point where he could build his own ships and uh, sort of became the premier shipbuilder up here. So he learned it here too, though. Yeah, which is he interesting. learned, learned yeah. it here. He uh, started off uh, on the Eureka side of the bay with a shipyard, but then um, uh, he moved over to the Fairhaven side of the bay. Which is and the famous shipyard that yeah, it was, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that was his shipyard. Uh, and uh, he created dozens of uh, wooden ships that were uh, noted for their uh, resilience and for uh, their serviceability yeah. as uh, fishing vessels or as, uh, other types of transportation vehicles. And so he did that you know, for a number of years. And last time I checked, there are still two of his uh, ships uh, that are 
seaworthy uh, or yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, yeah. The one of them is the, uh, in the harbor up at Seattle. Okay. And it's owned, I believe, by the University of Washington. And uh, I don't know how seaworthy it is, but they uh, they have it floating. Yeah. At least you know, and the students uh, who are interested in this kind of thing can go out and check it out. What, so what, what's it a lab for? I mean, is it like uh, a what do they use it for? Well, you know? I think. Uh, the idea is that they become knowledgeable about uh, the rigging of the old-fashioned ships, the ah, construction okay. of it, and they might take it out on Lake Washington. I, I don't know what they're doing with it currently. It's been a few years since I checked. Okay, on well that's interesting. Yeah, though. yeah. Okay. You know, and when you get back to that time period, you're you know completely uh, out of uh, the realm of knowledge that we have today because you've got a wooden ship. It's not steel. You've got a ship that's sail-powered rather than something by a diesel engine or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, whole different technology. You know, and it, and it's a it's a very dramatic sort of thing because uh, you know, I remember as a kid, uh, the two things that really caught my attention when I went to the movies, if it was a Western, you know, you're mm -hmm. out in the Red Rock country, or if it was like a pirate's movie and yeah, you had yeah. the sailing ships. Yeah, totally. And, you know, they're magnificent uh, vessels to see and the craftsmanship is so uh, well done and it has to be well done or, you know, it's not going to work. Yeah. And so Ben Dixon, you know, is a master of that sort of thing. and. Then he continues for quite a while, and uh, this is where it gets kind of amusing, I think. Uh, now we've moved into the 20th century, and his shipyard is uh, still over there at Fairhaven, but uh, it's uh, World War I, mm -hmm. and the United States isn't in the war at first. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, everyone's thinking, well, what's... That's a pattern of behavior, by the <laughs> way, the <laughs> waiting until things yeah, get Yeah, I mean, we're seeing something now. <laughs> exactly. You know, what is going to happen? But, you know, a lot of people thought, well... You know, better be prepared. Yeah. And so um, the mayor of San Francisco, Sonny Jim Rolfe, uh, had been successful, I think, in different types of businesses, but he anticipated what was going to be happening. And he thought, well, uh, it's going to be good to be in the shipbuilding business because if the United States gets into the war, they're going to need a lot more ships. And even if they don't, uh, the countries that are fighting right now need ships to help supply them more than usual. Yeah. So uh, he uh, actually bought the property over at Fairhaven, uh, ben, ben Dixon Shipyard and some other uh, properties next to that, took it over, and then sure enough, you know, the United States goes into the war in 1917, and he starts getting contracts to build wooden ships. A lot of ships, you know, were of course being built out of steel by them, but he was yeah. going to build wooden ships. And uh, he uh, actually took over, I think, three ships that the Ben Dixon Yard had partly built. And then he started building more ships of his own. And this is where it gets really interesting because I went back and looked at the old newspaper articles and there was actually a pretty good size article in the Chronicle uh, from San Francisco talking about Rolf's shipyard up here yeah. and how they were building these ships for the war effort, you know, and uh, what a good job they were doing. And a couple of local newspaper articles, oh, here's a ship that's getting ready to be launched. Mm -hmm. So found all of that. But years ago, I read an article that had a different side of the story. And the side there was that Rolf knew nothing about building ships, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but he wanted to get into it. And he came up here and he thing. didn't, you know, he didn't uh, hire the right people. Uh, and so geez. they built these hulls of ships and, you know, tried to make them seaworthy. And uh, uh, the, as I recall with this article, um, the government wouldn't accept them because they were of poor quality. Yeah, substandard. And, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they wound up finally, uh, he built 
four ships, and they, I think they were all rejected. And then he was working on a fifth ship, and the war ended. And he had the hull of the ship, but they hadn't totally completed it. So after uh, the war was over, here you've got at least the start of a ship, and they had to tow it down to Alameda in San Francisco Bay, uh -huh. where they were going to install the steam engines and do all of that. Yeah. But turned out, you know, I think once again, the ship wasn't high quality and there wasn't demand anymore. So it was just a berth there in the harbor. Yeah. And uh, that'd be 1918. And it wasn't until the 1930s that anything happened to it. Uh, it never sailed yeah. on the bay or anywhere else. It had to be towed because it didn't have its own power. Yeah. So now we're in the 1930s and they make a, a movie that was very famous at the time called Tugboat Annie. Uh -huh. and, uh, <laughs> I've heard the name. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, and the part of the plot was that you had this uh, woman who was a, a tugboat captain, Marie Dressler, who's one of the big actresses. What so year was this, time. 30s, you said? Oh, middle 30s. Okay, yeah. okay. And uh, so uh, they did a lot of scenes around Alameda and San Francisco Bay, and occasionally they needed other ships to be present. Yeah. And so this ship that Ben Dixon uh, had <laughs> built, and you know, it, from the outside, it looked like a real ship. It didn't have any power, though. Yeah, and yeah. And so they could just, they just, you know, put it in the dock next to Tugboat Annie's Tug, <laughs> and it got the co-star in the movie then, yeah, yeah. although it had never been to sea, never did anything else. And uh, to my knowledge, that was as far as that ship ever went. Wow. And that was the last of, you know, the Rolf uh, shipyard. Has that been, has that been the death of shipbuilding on the North Coast entirely? I mean, Ben Dixon got bought out. It seems like yeah. he didn't continue his work no. anywhere else, or? No, as far as I know, that was the end of it for Ben Dixon. And then Rolf, uh, you know, kind of crashed and burned. Right next to Rolf, up at Samoa, mm -hmm. the Hammond Lumber Company actually got into the act, and they built some uh, ships for World War one also oh, okay and as, uh, from what I've read uh, they passed inspection they were okay they knew more about it but yeah, yeah. they're old photos you know showing uh, you've got to have kind of a you know a big area to build these ships and it's kind of spectacular when you see here's this big hull of a ship but there's no rigging on it or anything like that yeah. so uh, they had that uh, shipbuilding operation also then after that uh, as far as I know there was not a lot of extensive shipbuilding but Smaller boats, you know, like uh, for uh, fishing, those kind of things would be constructed up here and certainly repaired up here. You know, and there, there's a part of Fairhaven called uh, Fintown mm -hmm. where they still actually have a, a repair facility. Yeah, they were, it's like the dry dock thing. Yeah, like you, yeah. It slopes down into the water. You can see it out there if you yeah. go. And, and they can look. actually bring the ship up onto dry land, you know, worked on it. Yeah. And in fact, they had uh, another one of those facilities out at Indian Island for many years where uh, Tolawat Village, mm -hmm. where the massacre site was. Yeah. And uh, at one point in time, uh, the owner of that, uh, a white person, actually had uh, written into the deed of the property that no Indians would be allowed on the property, <laughs> uh, which is kind of the ultimate uh, insult, I think, yeah, you know, on their to sacred, these people. Here's yes. a sacred site and the site of this, you know, a tremendous tragedy, and yet uh, this fellow, because of the ownership laws that allowed him to own it, yeah. uh, uh, removed that. So for a number of years, that site was used to repair ships, and then eventually uh, the uh, Weot tribe was able to regain possession of it, and uh, they wanted to uh, 
deal with the site and examine it a little more thoroughly. And a couple of archaeologists that I work for from HSU went down uh, because they wanted to do some examination of the area. Mm -hmm. And it turned out because they had the shipbuilding or ship repair facility there, uh, it had been contaminated with solvents and other um, uh, chemicals yeah. that uh, rendered it a, a, a hazardous uh, waste yeah, area. Yeah. And so for the first time in these uh, archaeologists' experience, uh, they had to put on hazmat suits wow. and go out and conduct their archaeological survey. Wow. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, and that's just the typical story where you have a native culture, they, they lose their island, yeah. their, their sacred site, they get it back, and they're the ones that have to clean up the mess yeah. from yeah. the years of industrial use or whatever else. I mean, just yeah. insult to injury, literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you find that you know, so often that that, that happens, at least under regulations from a while ago. Uh, well, one thing that could happen is some company goes in, they operate, they contaminate a site, and then they just close up or go bankrupt. Yeah, and yeah. then you're left with the contamination. Well, that's like with the, the site where they were posing the marina center for so long, yeah. the balloon track. Uh, yeah. So much of that is dirty, and part of oh, the, yeah. the, uh, the remediation of that is carried with every deal that's considered about it because it's yeah. going to be a, yeah. a difficult and expensive process. You know? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the balloon track because, you know, now that we're talking about Humboldt Bay and yeah. what's going on around there. So um, that area, you know, which had been the Northwestern Pacific Railroad's yard up here and they had the train station nearby and all, it's built on top of... Clark's Slough, which is the major slough on the west side of Eureka. Mm -hmm. And it comes into the bay right where the Warfinger building is. And yeah. In fact, you know, if you drive along Waterfront Drive, you'll actually cross a little bridge that uh, next to the Warfinger where Clark's Slough still goes into the inland area. Yeah. But uh, over time, uh, almost all of that area has been covered over and the slough has been almost obliterated. But back in the 1870s, uh, you had a system there of a waterway that went almost all the way down to uh, the Bayshore Mall. Wow. And it went all the way over to Broadway and it went over by where uh, Schmidtbauer Lumber Company is. And in fact, Schmidtbauer Lumber Company was built right on top of what had been a lagoon. Wow. Uh, so you had all of this, these waterways that were there, and it was marshland. Yeah. Now you get to the 1880s, and they're building the uh, original railroad that came through this area, and it wanted to connect uh, the Eel River Valley mm -hmm. with Eureka. And so as they come up along the bay, they have to go through these wetlands that are there, oh, uh, west of Costco and west of the Palco Marsh and west of the Bayshore Mall. And in order to have a firm bed for the railroad, they had to build what was essentially a dike yeah, yeah. Uh, on top of that. And you could see the raised earth yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so raising, and so it became a barrier and it shut off the tidal action that uh. used to come in to that area and it went all the way up to where the balloon track was. So then uh, those wetland areas uh, started to dry out. They didn't have as much water available. And then gradually, as they uh, wanted to expand the industrial area of Eureka, that was a, a place to do it. Yeah. And uh, I guess my favorite spot out there in terms of uh, the transition is uh, where Walgren's drugstore is now at the corner of uh, uh, 14th and Broadway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, big area there. Well. Uh, years ago, that was uh, the site of the Humboldt uh, woolen mills. 
ah. uh, many years ago, and there's a lot of sheep raising going on in Humboldt County, <laughs> and a lot of wool available, and uh, the sheep uh, raisers would sell a lot of the wool to uh, this woolen mill right there, yeah. and uh, they uh, would actually process it. They'd make uh, blankets, different uh, woolen goods out of the, the wool, and uh, oh, this must have been about 1985. I'd only been up here a few years, but uh, by that time, the, the woolen mill was still there, this big wooden building, but uh, they turned it into, uh, the, the main part of the building was uh, like a second-hand store. Wow. And they called it Flotsam and Jetsam. <laughs> and uh, so I went in once, you know, I was curious about it. And, you know, this big, it's like a cavern inside, and it was all, you know, old redwood building and dated back, you know, at that point, maybe 70 years or so. And so I'm in there looking around, and I hear this strange sound. And it's coming from under the floor. Yeah. And it sounds like sloshing, you know, like something's s s uh, water's moving around and s and, and you can hear it within the building. Yeah, you can hear it within <laughs> the building. So of course I had to ask, you know, and I asked this clerk. I said, "What's that? You know, I hear down there." And she was very friendly about it. She said, oh, that's a Clark Slough. They built this building years ago right over it. She said, in the back room, there's a big hole in the floor. <laughs> and when they were done with the, you know, they had discard wool stuff and dyes that they oh were done God. with. And they said, whenever they had any junk that they couldn't get rid of, they just dropped it through the hole and it went to Clark <laughs> Slough. And that was their garbage disposal yeah. system. Wow. So uh, it, it's that sort of thing that, you know, it took place all around that area. Yeah. That, uh, uh, you know, if they talk now about trying to rehabilitate something like the balloon track, for example. Yeah. Well, you've got all of these other things going on that yeah. over years have, first of all, kind of sealed off the top of the slough, and then secondly, you know, contaminated. Yeah, just it. constant yeah. shoveling of chemicals yeah. and everything else and waste. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the woolen mill because my wife's, uh, my wife Amy's grandmother, or step-grandmother, mm -hmm. actually, um, she worked there during and after the war. Oh. And so she always had stories about it. And I had it, I, for some reason, had it all the way turned around. I thought she was, like, on the other side of town, uh -huh. but you just mentioned it, and that's, mm -hmm. so that's where it was. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, years ago, oh, this would be in the... Uh, 1980s, uh, when they still had Channel 6 TV up here. Yeah, I worked there for okay. a while. Well, yeah, you yeah. might remember they had a cameraman by the name of Merle Schuster. I don't and, I didn't know him. And no. he turned out he was a, a wonderful photographer and they have a great collection of his photos up at HSU. But at that point in time, he was, uh, whenever they would do a news shoot, uh, he'd go out with the news reporter and he would uh, do the, the video portion yeah. of it. And so I was being interviewed one day and I knew Merle Little and he had this beautiful plaid woolen jacket on. You know, it was uh -huh. really looked nice. I said, wow, Merle, you know, that's a really nice jacket. And he said, well, it used to be a blanket, and it came from the humble woolen mills. Yeah. And then my mother, you know, turned it into this beautiful coat. But yeah. uh, looking at that, I think it was first-rate product. Yeah, they did quality work yeah. there. Yeah. You know, uh, to end up, to wind things up here, there's a question I've always had about the all the ruins back behind the uh, Bayshore Mall. Mm -hmm. There's like, you know, hollowed out cavernous buildings, and now yeah. it's all covered with graffiti, and there's campsites and stuff. Yeah. But I've always kind of wondered, was that a particular facility or was that just 
uh, you know, a whole bunch of different things that was going on back well, then. Well, you know, there's, there's rumors about uh, several areas, you know, like up in Old Town, and there's always been this rumor that the Pink Lady was connected by a secret tunnel with the Carson Mansion. Ah. And uh, I've tried to track those down. I've never found uh, proof of anything that was like subterranean like yeah. that. In fact, I had a real interesting talk once with a uh, plumber who uh, specialized in doing uh, work for uh, businesses and industry, and he got called out a lot down in Old Town Eureka, uh -huh. and you'd have to crawl under the buildings, you know, to do work on things, and he said, never saw any sign of a tunnel or anything like that. Yeah. There was, but what he did find was a lot of these buildings, kind of like the woolen mill, were uh, they still had tidal action coming under them. You wow. know? So he had to time his work under yeah. there to get so flooded Yeah, so the low out. tide. Yeah. So th there's, there is no tunnel system under Old Town? Uh, I thought well, there was an old, uh, I mean, I've always heard that there was an old, like, uh, um, you know, white lightning kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Where they, bootlegger yeah, I, tunnels. You know, I've heard about those things. I, I can't find a reliable source that confirms that. What I have found is above ground, yeah. uh, there were a lot of secret passages built in the buildings during Prohibition. Okay. And there was a, a contractor by the name of uh, Glenn Nash, who was actually uh, president of the Humboldt County Historical Society for a while. Yeah. And he went around and knew a lot about those buildings. And he confirmed that you know, there are certain places where uh, uh, there'd be a hidden room or a hidden access to yeah. a place where you could either drink or where you could store the Move alcohol. liquor or whatever. But yeah, but once again, never found anything about it being uh, like a tunnel. And the problem in Old Town is, if you tried doing a tunnel there, you'd be so close to sea level, there'd be a real possibility yeah. you'd just flood, you know. Yeah, well, so I heard it from Merle Harpum. Oh, okay. Well, well, I, I, well I, he should. that's where I heard yeah. a story about it, yeah. where uh, there was, you know, Jimmy Dunn's bar yeah. in oh, Old yeah. Town, yeah. that someone had found out that they were losing liquor in the bottom uh, basement of their place, and they kept disappearing. And they couldn't figure out where what was happening, where the bandit was coming from. And then there was, uh, at one point, they found a footprint. And so they began to look around where they found the footprint, and then they found the entrance to a tunnel, and it led back up to 2nd Street. But I don't know. I mean, that's just a rumor I heard. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, you would know. So. Well, I've, I've tried to find out. Uh, and like I say, I've never found, you know, definitive proof. Yeah. And if... If they had something at Jimmy Dunn's and we're going all the way up to 7th Street, that's a yeah. pretty long tunnel. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, then you're talking about tidal action. And yeah. I mean, yeah, and that whole place just yeah. sucks in water. So yeah. I can't imagine it would have lasted yeah. even if it did exist. I mean, it's possible. I, I, I just don't think it's probable. But I am always uh, have an eye out for that. Because, you know, yeah. if you find out something like that is true, then it makes a great story. Hey, absolutely. It's yeah. totally entertaining. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, Jerry. Thank yeah. you very much. Thanks for listening to episode one of Keats Crossing the Bar podcast. We'll be back soon with Margot Robbins, a Native woman who has worked hard over the past several years to address California's wildfire issues with the restoration of Yurok tribal cultural practices centered around stewardship rather than exploitation. Until then, this is your host, James Falk. Stay tuned. Stay informed.